That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were, taking, they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing them. He said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered him and said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in the last few days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women in our, of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and to enter into his joy, his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened to us with the scriptures? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them, with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told, told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them by breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. In 1999, there were two movies released, and I know some of you are too young to even remember this, but these, these movies have become cult classics over the years. And these two movies were released, and they were not that much alike whatsoever. But with, what they did have in common is you could not watch them the same way twice. Because you would get to the end of the movie, and there was a big twist at both of the ends of the movies that caused you to go back and to watch the movie completely one more time and to see everything in a new kind of light. Does anybody know what movies I'm talking about? Sixth Sense is one. The other one is Fight Club. Both released the same year, and like they both had that trick uh, that, that made you think through the whole thing differently. Much like these movies, our perspectives influence our reality. Our perspective, what we know, influences what we deem to be real. When I was three years old, um, I was a goober, as I still am today, and I was climbing a chair, uh, some type of armchair that we had in our apartment in Memphis. And uh, my dad was still living with us at this time, but he was at work. And my mom was at home vacuuming while I was climbing up onto this chair, and I fell backwards, and I hit my head on the corner of one of those big 1990s speakers. It was 1980s speakers. So this is still the 80s. And uh, I busted my head open, and blood started going everywhere. 
uh, as a three-year-old. And my mom, she stopped vacuuming immediately, scooped me up, and put me in the car, and we drove to the hospital because she knew I needed stitches, and I needed them pretty quickly. The only problem is, this is the days before cell phones. And so she didn't take a moment to stop and write a note. And so when my dad came home, he opened the door. The door was unlocked. That's, a, that's normal. He would expect that. But his family is not home. And worse off, the vacuum is in the middle of the floor, still plugged in, not running, and blood is everywhere. You see, to my dad, his perspective had shaped his reality that his family was murdered viciously and carried off by gangsters somewhere. He's like, my gambling finally caught up with me. Sorry. <laughs> sad, sad childhood. <laughs> my, father, my father died last year, so I'm not dishonoring him in any way that he will hear about, at least. Um, our perspectives influence our reality. I don't know what your reality looks like today. I don't know what perspective you're bringing in to this room and what the world looks like from your vantage point. Maybe you just look at your life and you cannot understand why God has you in this place. Maybe you just cannot understand what he's doing in your life. Maybe you had a 10-year plan and now you're in year eight and all of a sudden it's gone kaput. Maybe it seems like God's possibly even against you and that things just are not working out. Friends, one key to our joy as Christians is to be able to see our life from God's vantage point. You see, when our perspective matches God's perspective, our joy is maximized. It is really the way in which we can experience the joy that we have in Christ is when our perspective matches God's perspective. And so when we face those moments in life where they just don't make sense, what we need to pray is that God would give us eyes to see as he sees, that he'll help us to see things from his vantage point, from the way that he sees it, so that his reality can shape our reality. Pastor Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, if we knew everything that God knows, we would ex ask exactly for what he gives. We're in the middle of this little three-week series that we're doing on the resurrection. We recognize that the church preaches the resurrection every Easter, but sometimes we don't even preach on it in a focused way any other Sunday of the year. But it is such a theme in the life of Christians. It is such an important aspect of what we believe. In fact, the scriptures say that if it is not true, then we are most to be pitied. That, that Christianity and Christians are most to be pitied if, if the resurrection is not true. And so what we're doing this week is we're doing a, a little bit more of an in-depth look at the resurrection. We're spending three weeks going through one account, which is in the Gospel of Luke, walking through this last chapter that he has. And the thing with Luke, and we mentioned this last week, but Luke probably knew dozens of stories about the resurrected Christ. He knew that Jesus walked the earth for 40 days. He wrote about it in the book of Acts. He said that Jesus walked and appeared to his disciples many times over 40 days before he ascended into heaven. But in his gospel story, in his gospel account, he decides to focus on three of those stories. And so we have to come to the conclusion that these three stories are particularly important for us. And they are particularly helpful for us in understanding who the resurrected Christ is. And so as we dive into this story of 
Cleopas and his friend on the way to Emmaus, I want us to look at it in three acts. The first act is our perspective. The second act is God's perspective. And the third act is when our perspective and God's perspective coincide. When those things line up, what happens? So first, let's look at our perspective. When you open the scripture, we're starting in verse 13 of chapter 24. When you open this story and you look at it, what we find is that, is that it starts this way. It says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. That very day, the same day that the women found the tomb empty, there are two other followers of Christ who are on their way to a village called Emmaus from Jerusalem. And then it continues and it says, about seven miles from Jerusalem. That's a significant fact to know that Emmaus is seven miles from Jerusalem. Why? Because I know that people back in the olden days did not walk that much slower than you and I walk today. And so a seven-mile walk back then took about two hours, just as it takes today. If you're getting after it, you can walk seven miles in two hours on a road. We're not talking about hiking a mountain. We're talking about walking down a road, okay? And so we know that this whole story, it only takes, part, takes place in about two hours, and we know that from this scripture that one of these people that's walking to Emmaus is named Cleopas. This is the only time that Cleopas appears in the scriptures. We don't know anything about Cleopas other than he was one of them. He was one of those who followed Christ. He was one of those who put his hope in Jesus. And he's walking to Emmaus and he's disappointed on his way to Emmaus. We don't know anything about the other person he's walking with. It's traditionally been thought of to be two men walking, but it could very well be Cleopas' own wife. It could be his, his girlfriend. It could be some, some other follower of Jesus. We don't know who this other person was, but we know that he wasn't alone. And as they're walking, they're talking to one another. Verse 14, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And as they're talking about these things, what happens? But Jesus himself shows up. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went to them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now this could mean that they were supernaturally kept from recognizing who Jesus is. In fact, it probably does have some implication of that way. But you also need to remember that Cleopas isn't mentioned anywhere else in the Scripture. It's not likely that Cleopas is Jesus' closest follower. He was not one of the 11 remaining disciples. And so Cleopas was probably more of a distant learner to Christ. He was a follower of Christ, but he wasn't the closest follower of Christ. And he's completely out of context. No part of Cleopas expects Jesus to be alive today. As they're walking down this road, Cleopas is experiencing grief, and he's mourning. He is not expecting to see this guy that is dead walking alongside him with his friend, asking him questions. That's like seeing your kindergarten teacher in the casino, okay? Like, if I did see my kindergarten teacher in the casino, I would assume it's not her, because kindergarten teachers aren't supposed to be in the casino, and neither are pastors. So we're both going to walk the other direction, if I was in that situation. So Jesus approaches these two and he says, what is this conversation that you are holding as you walk? And we cannot miss their initial reaction. Don't miss their initial reaction because it's easy to read over it. Verse 17, it says, they stood still looking sad. They're grieving. They're mourning. 
They're experiencing confusion. They may have been falling into what we might call a depression. They're looking at life, and the way that they view life, from their perspective, there is no resurrection. Their hopes are gone. And they respond to Jesus, and they say, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened these days? Ha! What irony! This is a hilarious question that's recorded in the gospel. Cleopas turns and looks at Jesus and says, Are you the only one in Jerusalem who does not know what's been happening these few days? Now Jesus responds in a classic Jesus way, and he says, What things are you talking about? That's so Jesus. Okay, but... He could have, and if I were in his place, I, he could have said, really? Like a Tina Fey and an Amy Poehler, really? In fact, I am the only one in Jerusalem who does know what's been happening these past few days. You see, you guys are still sad, but I am alive. I was doing something that no one understood. He's the only one who truly gets it, yet he's being asked if he's the only one who doesn't get it. Jesus asks, what's happening? And so what they end up doing, how intimidating, they explain the story of Jesus to Jesus. And so Cleopas, in his own words, in his own perspective, we get to see the way that he's thinking about this story, his perspective of what's happening, which is shaping his reality. And he says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all these people. Who is Jesus to Cleopas? Jesus was a man first. That's the first thing I notice. Jesus is dead and Cleopas is mine. Not only was he a man, it doesn't say anything about him being the Son of God. It doesn't say anything about him being the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ. It says Jesus of Nazareth, a man, not a man God, a man, mighty indeed, and a prophet. This is a secular description of who he was. Cleopas continues, and he says, concerning this man, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. You can just hear the disappointment in Cleopas's voice. Our hopes are crushed. We had hoped he was the one. We had big hopes for you, Jesus, but now we're disappointed because we were obviously wrong about you. You're dead now. You see, Cleopas thought that Jesus was a failure. When he looked at the life of Jesus, he said he was a great man, but he's gone now. And so how am I supposed to reinter- what am I supposed to do now? I've been following this guy, I've been placing my hope in him, and he's dead. You see, Cleopas, he knew that Israel needed redemption. He had hoped that Christ would redeem him. And the way that he thought that Christ was going to redeem him was by becoming the leader of Israel and freeing them from the bondage of Rome. 
You see, he saw his problem and he saw the people of Israel's problem, what they needed redemption from as being a political problem. They did not need redemption from sin in Cleopas' mind, but they needed redemption from Rome. They needed a political leader, a new king, a new David to come and lead them back to their previous glory. And if this is your hope for Christ, it is a warped perspective because he was a failure if this was his goal. You see, Cleopas, when he looked at the death of Jesus, he got many things right. He's describing many things. Jesus is from Nazareth. He, did, he was crucified. He was delivered over. He was crucified by the political leaders and the, the religious leaders. But he was not a failure. And the reason why that Cleopas thought Jesus was a failure is because he only saw this story from his own perspective. And he could not bring God's perspective into view. How often do we feel like God is a failure because we just cannot see it from God's perspective? How often in your life do you feel like God has failed you because you just cannot see it from the way that God sees it? Our perspective, church family, is limited. We have that in-the-tunnel worldview. We have that only street views version of our perspective. When God has the entire map and all the traffic and he knows where you're headed and he knows where he's taking you. We need to look at God's perspective. Point number two, act number two in this story is God's perspective. Cleopas didn't understand that the redemption that Israel most needed was the same redemption that the whole world needed. We needed a deeper redemption, not from a political problem, but we needed redemption from a spiritual problem. We needed redemption from the evil of sin that lives within each and every one of you. The redemption that Israel needed was a spiritual redemption, a spiritual release from spiritual slavery. You see, Cleopas, he had big dreams for Jesus, and his big dreams were crashed, but his dreams were far too small. What he hoped Jesus would do was so small. It was so minuscule. You see, he had these dreams and they were crashed. How often are our dreams crashed by what we think we need Jesus to do? He had these dreams that Jesus would be the king. And little did he know that Jesus was not only going to be the king of Israel, he was going to be the king of the entire world. In fact, he was the king. He is the king of the entire world. He wanted Jesus to come and rescue Israel, to come and redeem Israel, to free them from their captors. But Jesus wanted to free the entire world from an evil that is far more evil than, than Rome. Because the evil that lived within Rome is the same evil that lives within all oppressors throughout all history. Your, your Stalins, your Hitlers, the same evil that Jesus came to destroy. The same evil that lives within you and me. You see, it's not only that we need political salvation, we need freedom from the sin that lives within each of us. And Jesus understood it, but Cleopas did not. You see, if Jesus had become a great king of Israel, he could have done that. Jesus could have assaulted, uh, could have risen to the, the throne of Israel instead of the wooden cross on Golgotha. But all earthly kings die. And it would not have gotten 
that far. You see, Jesus came to be a redeemer, not only for the whole world, but for all of history. So how does Jesus respond to Cleopas? Sounds harsh, what he says. Because in verse 25, Jesus responds, and really the way that I prefer to read this is is less aggravated and more exasperated. I don't know what Jesus' emotions were, but this is how I read it. Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all the prophets, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus just accomplished the hardest thing that's ever been accomplished, and nobody gets it. Nobody appreciates him. No one sees him. Have you ever done a hard thing and no one saw you do it? And Jesus just looks, and I think he's speaking with compassion. When he says foolish, he's not, foolish in the scripture is not an assessment of how smart someone is. Foolish in the scripture does not mean how ignorant you are. Foolishness in the scripture is a, is a moral judgment. The scriptures say that the fool says that there is no God. And so he's looking at Cleopas's limited perspective, and he's saying, you're thinking like a fool because you're not recognizing what God is doing. In fact, God is absent from your entire story that you just shared, Cleopas. Cleopas, you just shared a story about Jesus to Jesus that leaves God out of it. Jesus recognizes that Cleopas is looking at life as if God is not a part of it. In what areas do you need God's perspective to reinterpret how you view your problems? Maybe you're in a dead-end job, and you don't know why God has you in that place. Or maybe you've lost your job recently, and you don't understand what God is doing. Maybe You're bored to death as a stay-at-home parent. Maybe you're suffering from a chronic illness and you just cannot see God's perspective in this situation. I don't know what you're going through, but God does. And our perspectives are limited, but his is unlimited. One of the most powerful things that you can do in the midst of discouragement is to ask God to give you his eyes to see. Ask God to help you to see your story from a bird's eye view, from a God's view point. Sometimes it's impossible to see what God's doing in your life at that moment. And so a better question for you might be to ask, God, can you give me your perspective on things that have happened a few years ago? Because I know that if you saw me through those things, you'll see me through the next. You see, we can base God's faithfulness on his past track record, and he is always faithful. When you're in the moment, sometimes it's very hard to see, and then you get years down the road, and you go, aha, I understand now, because if that had not happened, this had not happened, that wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't be here. But God, he is good, and he's put me in this place. We can rest assured that he does love us. He's not going to give up on us, and we know that Because Christ came to redeem us. Not just Israel, but all of us. Came to redeem the whole world. And then Jesus, to show them what he's saying, he he does this. Verse 27, this is so amazing. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. Cleopas 
and his friend, they get a little Bible study over their next two-hour walk. And oh, what a Bible study it was. Jesus himself opening the scriptures. And for the first time, he's teaching every scripture throughout the entire Old Testament. And not just the, the basic surface level meaning. He's teaching the deeper meaning. He's giving them the true meaning of all of the scripture. He's pointing to the fact that he is at the heart of every Old Testament story. He's showing how the Old Testament is not just a collection of laws, but it's the story of God and how it all points forward to the Messiah, and he is the Messiah. What a wonderful Bible study he had. You see, sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we like to make it about ourselves. We read about David and Goliath. We read about this giant that David faced, and we think, what giants do I have in my life to face today? You know, that can be encouraging. That can be helpful. But try doing that for a scripture in Leviticus, and you're going to be scratching your head for a little while. It's not always that way. But when you read the scripture with a Christ-centered focus, you understand that all of it is not there because you are not the main character of the story, but God is. Jesus is. And it's all pointing forward to him. I don't know what Jesus talked about on this little Bible study, but I can take a few guesses. He may have walked them through the book of Genesis, and he may have started with the first promise of the gospel, what theologians call the proto-evangelium. And while God says to Satan in the garden and the child of Eve, and he says, and he says to the evil one, you will bruise the promised child's heel, but he will crush your head. And in that moment, Jesus might say, you know that cross, my heel was getting bruised, but I was crushing some heads. You didn't see it, but that's what was happening. He may have talked about the covenant with Noah, where God provided a way of salvation for his people, and then he set a promise in the sky, a beautiful rainbow in the sky, to promise that he would never flood the earth again. Instead, this bow is pointed into heaven. And next time, he himself would bear the punishment on our behalf. He would take on the arrow into his own heart so that we might have life with him. He may have walked him through the covenant with Abraham, where Genesis 16 says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, how did that work? but based upon a future promise, a promise of a Messiah who would one day give Abraham his righteousness. You know, Abraham's own righteousness was found in Christ, looking forward, pointing forward to him. His faith was based on a future work of Jesus. He may have walked them through the story of Abraham and Isaac, where the father Abraham walks his son Isaac to the top of a hill because God told him to do it and tells him to sacrifice his own son. And as he gets prepared to bring down the knife on his own son's heart, God calls out and delivers a substitute right there on Mount Moriah. He finds a goat in the bushes and pulls the goat out and sacrifices the goat. And Jesus may have pointed out, you know that Mount Moriah, we have a new name for that. It's called Golgotha, the exact same location where Abraham was going to, to uh, sacrifice his own son. Jesus was sacrificed as God's son, as our substitute. Jesus may have walked him through the story of Joseph, who was betrayed by his brothers, much like Christ, left for dead, much like Christ. And yet he made a way of salvation for those who betrayed him. 
Jesus may have walked them through the Passover and the blood of the lamb that died in the place of the people. The blood was covered on the, on the doorpost so that the angel of death would skip over, much like the blood of Christ covers our heart so that the wrath of God might skip over us. Jesus probably talked about the great King David and how Christ descended from him. He himself is a descendant, and he is the king forever. And he almost certainly talked about Isaiah 53, where the prophets predicted Christ by saying he was in Isaiah 53, hundreds of years before Christ, says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Cleopas and his friend What a privileged position they are in. They get to hear the story of God from God himself. Explaining it, bringing it to light for the first time that anyone had ever understood truly, deeply, what Jesus had done and who he truly was. You see, at that moment, they're starting to understand. And they they get to where they're going. They get to the village. They ask Jesus to stay for dinner. And he sits down at the table with them, and he takes bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And what does it say? But it says, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. They just got this Bible study from Jesus, and they didn't even know it was Jesus. And finally, they recognized him, and oddly, the scripture says, and he vanished from them. I don't know what's happening there. Other than he vanished. That's, that's what happened. And then they look at each other. And they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? I don't know about you guys, but I know what they're talking about. Because when you see Christ as the main character, when your perspective on life finally coincides with God's perspective, and you see that he is the fulfillment of all this ancient prophecy. Story after story, I only gave you the tip of the iceberg. Every page pointing toward Christ. When you understand what he came to do, and then you understand his plan, and not only his plan for the world, but his plan for you and how you're a part of his plan. The burning in your heart. The sensation of the Holy Spirit helping you to see this thing and to believe it to be true. That's the most joyous thing that we can ask for. And that's my prayer for you this this morning, church, that your perspective and God's perspective would finally collide. God does this for us sometimes. Sometimes he walks with us through long passages, long times. We don't recognize that it's him. One of my favorite books, and I can't go into all the details, but if you've read it, you know what I'm talking about. The, the, the Horse and His Boy from the book of Narnia, from the Chronicles of Narnia. Shasta is this character who does not know God, does not know Aslan. And at the very end, Aslan draws near to Shasta. And Shasta says, where were you? And, he's, and Aslan explains, I was with you at the tombs. I was with you in this moment. I was right there. 
And the hints of it are throughout the entire story. Friends, where has God been with you throughout this time? How is he pursuing you? And how might your eyes open to see him in a new kind of way? Let us pray. Father, we pray that you'll open our eyes to see you, that you'll help us to have your perspective on what is going on in our life, because God, it just does not make sense sometimes. There are people here who are hurting. There are people here who have experienced pain beyond what I have. There are people here who are confused, who are experiencing grief. And Father, we pray that you will reveal yourself to them, because what we need most is not your full plan, but we need you. And we pray that you will draw near to us. And God, as we come to your table now, we pray that you prepare our hearts to remember what you have done. We ask this in Christ's name.